There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. <clears throat> grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please be seated. I ask that the children will be able to come forward for our children.
about how the, the church builds itself up. But I'm leaving. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So now I'm going to have you guys build a tower, but it's not, the, it's not really the kind of tower that the Bible is talking about. This tower is going to be out of light, well actually Duplo. So you can have two teams, so you two can be a team, and you can, two can be a team, and we'll have, we'll have one minute to see who can build the tallest tower. So I've got the Duplo right here.
do a pretty good job. Maybe you can be an architect when you grow up. Talk to Miss Kate about that. Okay. I might be a bat scientist. Okay, quick enough, guys. So what, what was supposed to happen, look up here for a second. If you build a tower on top of Plato, what would normally happen? And that's right, it would fall over. Okay. But the. But the way that. The way that it's, the way that it's supposed to be. chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. And we saw that in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul had moved on from the doctrinal foundations of his letter to the practical application. In the first half of Ephesians, in chapters 1 to 3, Paul tells us all that, that has been done for us in Christ. And in the second half, in chapters 4 to 6, Paul tells us what we are to do because of what has been done for us in Christ. And so the, the first three chapters are really the, the doctrinal foundation of the gospel, and then now the next three chapters, he tells us how we're to respond to that gospel. Paul began chapter 4 by saying, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now we know how we used to walk. We, we know what our lives looked like before coming to Christ. But, but Paul talks about it in chapter 2 and it describes it in, in some detail, in very graphic terms. Where he, he, says that, he says that we, were, that we all walked in our trespasses and sins, that, that we followed the, the world and Satan and that we lived in the passions 
of our flesh. And the reality is that, that there, there are very degrees of that, but that, that was true to, to uh, that was completely true of each one of us to one degree or another. But then in, in chapter 2, verses 4 to 6, he, he presents the sharp contrast of what the gospel has done for us. But he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's our calling. That's the glory of what God has done for us in Christ. We had nothing at all, nothing whatsoever to commend us to God. But God set his love upon us in Christ. He made us the objects of his love. That is our calling. And so what Paul says in, in chapter 4, to, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Just, just think about what that means. What, what Paul is calling us to. Well, he, he describes what this walking would look like in, in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so there's four virtues that he's talking about there. Humility and gentleness and patience and loving forbearance. He's saying that is what the church is supposed to look like. A, a group of people who, who put one another first, who deal kindly with one another, a, a people who really genuinely care about one another and who are confident that God will accomplish the work that he began in those around you. A people who love each other so much that, that their rough edges, that the rough edges of others don't offend. These are people that are walking together in the unity that has been purchased for them by the blood of Christ. So how do you take a people a people who we saw from the beginning of chapter 2 were, were, were characterized by, by hatred of God and hatred of others and then make them a people who love God and love each other. Well, I, I see that happening here. I, I see growth in, in many people in this church in, in these specific areas. I, I see people talking to each other about their spiritual lives. I see people when they're when when there's an offense that, that's been been committed against another, I see people going to the other person and talking about it and, and seeking to make it right. I, I see people loving each other and, and serving e each other. I see people praying more. I see people seeking to spend time together in fellowship outside of just Sunday. Now, I'm sure that it's happening in, in ways that, that I can't see. But God is doing something here. How do you account for that? Because we are all those people, like he described at the beginning of chapter 2, that was us prior to our salvation. Where does that love and, and where does that unity come from? Well, we saw from chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, that, that our, our unity is, is a reflection of the unity within the Godhead. 
that we are one because there is one body and one spirit, just as you're called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That because God is one, we are one. But again, that's, that's a fact. That's, that's a... It's a description of, of the reality, but how does that happen? How does the unity of the Godhead become our unity? How does that happen? Well, what I'm really asking here is, is how does Jesus build his church? How does Jesus build his church? In Matthew 16, when Jesus asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, now hear this, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus said, I will build my church. But Jesus ascended to the Father, didn't he? Jesus is not physically here anymore. So how does Jesus build his church? Well, chapter 4 of Ephesians, verses 7 to 16, tells us how. First of all, in verses 7 to 10, we'll see that Jesus gave gifts to the church. And then in 11 to 14, we'll see that Jesus gave leaders to the church. And then in verses 15 and 16, we'll see that Jesus gave you to the church. So first of all, Jesus gave gifts to the church, verses 7 to 10. He, he begins here um, in, in this, it's really, it's a continuation of, of what he's just been saying in, in verses 1 to 6. But he says, but grace is given to each one of us. Grace was given to each one of us. Now, we all know that, that grace was given to us to save us. But that's not the kind of grace that Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about saving grace, but serving grace. He just talked about that in, in chapter 3, in, in, verses, in verse 2 and in verses 7 and 8. He, he talked about his stewardship of grace. So it's about his grace to serve, and, and there specifically he was speaking about his, the, the grace that he had to preach the gospel. And so there's, there's, that is one specific gift of grace. But, but there are others. There's all kinds of ways. We read this this morning in, in our call to worship from, from 1 Peter chapter 4. In verse 10, uh, Peter writes, as, as each has received a gift... Let us use it to serve one another as good stewards, and hear this, of God's varied grace. So to see that, he's not there talking about the grace to save, he's talking about the grace to serve. And Peter there describes love and hospitality and teaching and, and serving as gifts of God's grace. And that's not meant to be an exhaustive list, but a representative list to, to show that, that each one of us has been given grace to serve the church. Notice, too, that, that Paul does not say that, that this grace was given to a few of us, not even to some of us or, or most of us, but to all of us, to each one of us. See that there in verse 7? Grace has been given to each one of us. God's grace has been given 
to you. Paul doesn't say that you've been given a little grace. You've been given great grace. Grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now everybody has not been given the same measure of grace, but we've all been given something. We've all been given a particular gift of grace in order to serve in the church. You think about the parable of the talents. In Matthew 25, verses 15 to 20, where, where the, the, each of the, the individuals, one was given five talents, one was given two talents, and the one was given one talent. Remember, the ones who had received five and the ones who had received two, they, they used those talents to serve God, is what the parable is saying. But the one had received only one, what did he do? He buried his talent. He didn't use it. And he proved himself by not using these talents that he'd been given, he proved himself to be an unbeliever. Now that's not necessarily saying that, that those that have, have fewer talents or are unbelievers or people that have more talents prove themselves to be believers. I know of some very, what the world would call very talented people who prove themselves to be unbelievers. Being saved is not, is not based on 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 your gifting. Being saved is based on God's grace. But what you do with your gifting demonstrates the reality of your relationship with God or the lack thereof. But whatever gift you have received, there, there's no ground for boasting, right? Because it is a gift. It is not something that, that, that you can say, I did this. Or you can't even say, God gave it to me because I deserved it. It's, otherwise, it's not grace. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul writes, For who sees anything different in you? For what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Some of the, the, the most gifted leaders that, that I, I know of in the, in the church are also the most humble. They're also the ones that, that would be the, the first to declare that, that it's not about them, that it is God who's doing it. And, and so they, they, the, the, per, these, these people who are truly gifted really want God to get the glory. So they're, they're quick to shine and take the spotlight off of them and to shine it on the Lord. And I've seen this again and again and again, that, that some of the most gifted people are also the most humble. We have all received grace. Not just saving grace, but we have received serving grace. And so what are you doing as a steward of that grace? In verse 8, Paul quotes Psalm 68, 18. It reads, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. This picture is one that would have been familiar to the Ephesian Christians. It's a picture of a victorious Roman general were returning after battle and, and coming behind in his train would be the spoils of war, treasures that, that, that they, had, they had, had taken and, and, and people that they had captured. These would be the, the, the spoils of war and, and what this, this general would then do is that he would distribute the, the spoils of war amongst the soldiers. And that's the picture of, of what of what Paul is talking about. He's talking about, about Christ as a, as a conquering ruler, as a, as a general, and, and 
and he gives gifts to his church. And so when we think about, about the fact that, that, that Christ is our general, and, and he rules not just over a, a tiny country that, that he conquered, he rules over everything. Everything from, from heaven above to earth below. And, and verses 9 and 10 really continues the metaphor. He ascended refers to the ascension of Jesus after his resurrection. And that, that's pretty clear. We, we've read about that quite a bit in Ephesians. But what does it mean here to say when Paul says that he descended? There's, there's a few different theories on this. Some would say that, that it refers to his incarnation. That he descended to, to earth when he took on human flesh and, and, and dwelt among a sinful people. Or, or others would, would believe that it means he descended to the grave or, or to the place of the dead. And some would say that, that it means he descended to hell, like the Apostles' Creed states. And I need to say as an aside that there's been a lot of debate about this because the Scripture does not teach that Jesus went to hell. It, it, it's referring to the, the place of the dead. And, and so hell is not, um, at, at hell as we think of it, it's, it's hell is in the, the place of the dead. And I believe that's what Peter is talking about in 1 Peter 3.19 when he talks about Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison. Matt Emerson wrote a paper on this, said that Christ, Christ experiences death with us and for us in his humanity. His burial is vicarious, victorious, and eschatological in that he experiences, experiences death with us and for us, defeats death, and gives us hope for our own intermediate state between our death and a second coming. So we don't need to, to conclude from, from Jesus descending that it means that he descended into hell. Because he, when he, what did he say at the end of his, of his time on the cross? He said, it is finished. He had fulfilled everything that needed to be accomplished for our salvation. Some would say that, that he descended into hell and he was actually punished in hell. But his punishment for our sake is, is vicarious punishment. The, the, the substitutionary atonement that he effected for us when he was punished in our place was finished at his death. So we're seeing here that, that what, what Paul is saying that is that Christ is ruler from everywhere from heaven where, he, where he's ascended to the place of the dead. He's ruler of, above and ruler below. He's ruler over everything in between. And so this, this concept here of death is a construction we've seen Paul use repeatedly is that is the death of Christ is, is again and again linked with his resurrection and his ascension. We saw that in, in chapter 120 and in 2.16 and um, also paired with his ascension in 20, um, in 1.20-23 and in chapter 2, 5 and 6. So the picture is of Christ reigning over all things from, from the place of the dead to heaven. The fact that he reigns now. Jesus was leaving when he ascended to his Father, but he did not leave us empty-handed. He left his Spirit as his agent to work in his church. It started on Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit first filled these first disciples and empowered them for ministry. And it started on that day. The day of Pentecost is the day that the church was born. But it has continued to this day. 
that, that work of the Holy Spirit that began in Pentecost. Not in all of its manifestations, but when the Spirit first indwelled and empowered God's people, that was the starting point. And that continues to today, which takes us to our second point, that Jesus gave leaders to the church in verses 11 to 14. Jesus gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Now we went into quite a bit of detail describing these gifts to the church in our excursus from our studies of 1 Corinthians. And that this series, if you remember, we did it unwrapping the church's spiritual gifts. So I'm, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but I, I want us to note that this is not an inclusive list. This is a, a narrow focus that Paul has here, and we'll see that the focus here is on word gifts. Gifts associated with receiving and proclaiming the word of God. So just briefly, apostles in this context likely, likely refers to the twelve, to those first apostles. They, they received the scriptures by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and declared it to others. And prophets, we, we saw that, um, that this refers to the, the foretelling of God's word. These are New Testament prophets. They're inspired teachers of the scriptures who taught scriptures, the scriptures in the early church. Now there's two other times that, that Paul refers to the apostles and prophets in Ephesians. In chapter 2.20 that I read for the kids earlier and also in 3.5. He talks about the apostles and the prophets as the foundation. As the foundation for the church. With Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. But the canon of Scripture has been closed, and, and so those two offices, that of apostle and prophet, no longer play a role. That their mission is accomplished. But the next three do still exist, that of evangelists and shepherds and teachers, or whether it's we'll talk about whether it's it's whether that's two or one, but but first of all, evangelists. Well, all evangelists, we're we're all called to be evangelists. We're all called to, to faithfully proclaim the gospel. But there are certain people that are particularly gifted in this area. People who are, it's just, people who, they can't help all the time. They're just talking about the gospel and seeking to, to share the gospel with the lost and talking about the gospel with believers. And, and here again, I think in this context, this would have been those, these who have, have traveled around in the time of the early church. But there are still those who are peculiarly gifted as evangelists today. Many of us met Paul McDonald when he was here for our church camp. He is a gifted evangelist. He is one who, 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 on, the, on whom the Lord has placed a peculiar ability, or peculiar love for the gospel, and, it, and, and it has, has worked in him a faithfulness to proclaim it wherever he goes. An evangelist. I wonder if, if we have people who are gifted as evangelists here in our midst. I think it's safe to say we do. I think I know a couple. Then he talks about shepherds and teachers. And again, it's, it's the way that this is constructed. It could be either shepherds and teachers or it could be shepherd teachers. It could be uh, two descriptions of the same person. Now, shepherds, it's, it's some Bibles, it's translated pastors. It's, it's the same, the same word. Um, these are those who 
who shepherd the flock and, and teachers are those who teach the word of God. And so whether he's talking here about about shepherds who teach or teachers who shepherd, it, it's it's I think likely here that they're talking about the, the same person. And again, that office continues to this day. We saw in, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, in, in chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, that we are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what, what Paul's saying here is that, that Jesus builds his, is building his church, and that he does it through church leaders. And in verses 12 to 14, he describes the, what they do and why they do it. And, rem and remember as we look through these, that, that all of them are focused on the Word. So first of all, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We've talked about this many times, but, but my job as, as a shepherd teacher is, is not just to do the ministry, it's to equip the saints for the work of ministry. My job is to help you to identify and to grow in your gifts so that you will go out as ministers of the gospel. As F.F. Bruce puts it, if they exercise their ministries in such a way as to help other members of the church, so they exercise their ministries in such a way as to help other members of the church to exercise their own respective ministries. John Stott tells the story of being at a, at a church in the U.S. That, that listed the members of the church as ministers. And it listed the pastor as the assistant minister. Do you get that? If my job is to equip the saints for ministry, then you are the ministers and I'm the assistant minister. Now, of course, that as, as, as I'm part of this body as well, so I'm to minister, I'm to minister alongside you as well, but, but my job isn't to be doing all of the ministry of this church. It's to help you to do it. And the purpose of this is for the building up of the body of Christ. For the building up of the body. And, and, and here, we'll see again in a few minutes, that, that Paul is not here specifically talking about He's not talking about the church growing numerically. He's talking about the church growing in maturity. He's talking about the church growing in maturity, and we'll, we'll talk more about that in, in a few minutes. But notice here in verse 13 it says, until they attain the unity of the faith. Well, well how, do, does, how do people attain the unity of the faith? Through the proclamation of God's word. It comes about through the proclamation of God's word. That's why a people that is, is as diverse as we are culturally, we can be unified as one because we have a unity of doctrine. A little while ago, I, I received a call from someone in our own fellowship who was um, bemoaning in our, in our, I mean, our, our denomination. And he was bemoaning the fact that the churches. In our, in our denomination don't really come together to pray and to, to support and to serve each other like they once did. But it didn't take very long as I, as I spoke with this, with this individual that, that he believes a different gospel. 
And so there's a, a lack of unity because there is a lack of doctrine. A lack of unity in doctrine. But there are some, some, some key individuals in, in churches that within our fellowship and some, some very godly men, even more in Ontario, but some locally with whom we have, we have sweet and rich fellowship. Many have visited here, have visited us here in this church. They, they believe the same things we do. They believe what God's word says about the gospel and about the church. And not just a, a unity here within our own denomination. There's, there's unity that, that goes broader than that across to other denominations of people who believe what God's word says. It's not that, that we have the market cornered on the truth. There, there's, there's faithful brothers and sisters from across denominations. And it's with, with these individuals that we share a unity because we have a unity of doctrine. And also, they're, they're, one of the other goals is to, to grow in knowledge of the Son. To grow in knowledge of the Son. Again, how does that come about? It's also a word ministry. As we, we teach about Jesus, about his life, and about his example. This is not here just a a bare ascension of facts about Jesus. This is a personal and real knowledge of Jesus. Genuine believers, as they grow in, in knowledge of, of who Christ is, they, they exhibit a desire to grow in intimate fellowship with Christ. And it comes about through the Word, the power of the Spirit. They, they would grow to mature manhood and, and Again, these, these terms in, in Greek are speaking of men and women, manhood and womanhood, that we would be mature. As you grow in understanding, again, in a genuine believer, as they grow in understanding, their lives will change. And again, I've seen that here quite a bit in people in our churches. As they've grown in their doctrinal understanding, they've matured and, and they've, they've overcome besetting sins and they've, they've really um, they've matured in their faith. This is what happens, again, it's a ministry of the Word. Until there's a, a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What Paul is saying here, again, this is a, this is a ministry, of, uh, this is through the ministry of the Word, but it's that, that they'll grow more like Christ. Remember, we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ from Ephesians, sorry, from Romans um, 8 to 29. So, so we will grow through the ministry of the Word. When 14, verse 14 describes what it would look like if this wasn't happening. When, it, when it's not happening, the people will be tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness of deceitful schemes. We can see all sorts of churches where that's, where that's happening. Where people are tossed around by every wind of doctrine, by, by human cunning. And it grieves me. It grieves me deeply when I talk to individuals who have been sitting under ministries where they're not taught the truths of God's Word. It really doesn't take very long for you to, to discover what, what they believe and, and the, the, the paucity of, of their teaching. That they have not been, been taught the things of, of God as, as God's word declares them. And so we see things like the social gospel, the prosperity gospel, the seeker-sensitive gospel. None of these are actual gospels. They're not the gospel. 
The gospel doesn't need an adjective. If you add anything to the gospel, you are taking away from the gospel. And if you take away anything from the gospel, you are presenting a false gospel. More recently, trends in the church that I've seen are the emergent church, which, which seems to be thankfully starting to fade, but it's being replaced by spiritual formation, which is a, a blending of Eastern mysticism and Christianity. This is happening in many churches in our city. But those who have been trained by the Word of God can identify counterfeits. They, they have matured in the knowledge of Christ, and they are growing in the likeness of Christ. And here, if you, you can see in, in, in uh, verses um, 14 and into, into 15 and 16, the first of, of, what, of what can be referred to as put-offs and put-ons. Put-offs and put-ons. And, and Paul is going to have a series of these. He's going to go all the way to, into uh, verse 21 of chapter 5. Putting off one type of, of behavior or thinking and putting on another type of behavior or thinking. Putting off sinful thinking in this case and putting on righteous, godly thinking. It's really the, the foundation for biblical counseling. Putting off sinful behavior and putting on righteous behavior. We're going to talk a lot more about this next week, but, but what I want us to see here this morning is how through the ministry of the Word, we put off immaturity and self, selfishness and divisiveness, and we put on maturity and service and unity. I hope that you can see the direction that, that we're going here, the, the direction that, that Paul is taking this passage, that, that Jesus gave you gifts, and that Jesus gave leaders, to, gave leaders to the church to help you to identify and to use your gifts. But now instead of, of describing what you used to be like, Paul now describes what the church should look like. He's saying that Jesus is building his church and he's doing it through you. So verses 15 and 16, Jesus gave you to the church. When I was in high school and we'd see someone strutting around in their pride, we'd, we'd say, oh, you think you're God's gift. But brothers and sisters, you are God's gift. You are God's gift. You are God's gift to the church. You are God's gift to me, and you are God's gift to each other. You are God's gift. Look here in verse 15 about how this, this, this demonstrates itself. Again, it's through the Word. It's speaking the truth in love. So these are the people that have come under the ministry of God's word and, and they've, they've heard the truth spoken in love and now they're in turn speaking the truth in love to one another. And that's the type of things that I, I was talking about that I see here. When I see people in, encouraging each other and, and loving each other and serving each other and, and, and even admonishing each other and challenge, challenging each other, this is about speaking the truth in love. But it's so easy to, to be imbalanced, isn't it? To fall on one side or the other. And I, I think 
I'm not saying specifically here people in this in this church I've I've seen it but um, but I think in our circles it's probably a little easier to to speak the truth without love than it is to 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 be loving without the truth but it's both it's it's not love without truth where, where somebody doesn't ever speak God's word to someone because they don't want to offend them. I'd argue that, that that is not really love. But it's also not truth without love. It's it, it, Satan knows the truth. But he uses it to accuse and to, and to, to tear down. But, but we are, so see, to, to use the, the truth to build each other up in love. In Proverbs 25, 11, the writer writes this. He says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. So it's not just the right word, but love knows how to speak the right word and how to speak it at the right time. And as we do this, we help the body to grow. Now, now again, a little more, more detail here. This, Paul is not talking here about numerical growth. He's not talking about numerical growth. He's talking about people growing in maturity, growing in Christ-likeness, and, and in, in um, overcoming sin that they once struggled with, and, and helping to, people who, who once were, were selfish about their, their, in their behavior and their thoughts and their attitudes, and they're now seeking to serve. It's, it's people who, uh, who once were schismatic and, and who loved an argument. And now they instead they, they love to, to use words to, to build each other up. And, and if, it's, if it's ever to, to, to talk about um, talk to people about, about different doctrine or, or problems that they might have with their, in their doctrine, it's with a view to building that person up, not because they want to be right, but because, because they love that person. And so when the truth is, is spoken love, that's what happens. The, the church grows, it matures. Now that being said, the, the normal way for things to happen is, is when a church matures, when a church grows in this way, it, it quite often will lead to numerical growth as well, won't it? Because it, it, it leads to evangelism. Right? Because it, it leads to, to more prayer for each other. So we see God working in each, in each other's lives. We see, we see lives change. We see our life change. And so the, the truth becomes compelling. And, and so people see that, well, they, people are even going to churches where the gospel is not preached, and, and they, they see the difference between your life and, and their life, and they say, well, what's the difference? It's because the truth is spoken in love. So the, the truth becomes compelling, and, and people don't want to sit under false teaching anymore. So in all of this, we together grow into the head, into Christ. Paul here uses, uses two analogies. That of, again, ones that he's used before and uses elsewhere as well. That of the, the body and that of a building. That of a, of a body and a building. I'm not going to accuse Paul of using mixed metaphors here. He's saying the whole body is growing into the head. It's growing into Christ who is our head. In, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the, the Apostle Paul talks about about the church being a body and how when, when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. That's what happens when the church is built up in love. The body grows. 
Notice here too that the Paul says that it's it's with every joint with which it, with which it is already equipped. It already has all the parts. But sometimes what needs to happen is that the, the parts need to be exercised and strengthened so, so that we will all do what God is calling us to do. You are the parts. You are the joints. And so God is, is calling you and he's calling me to, to, to play our part in building up the church. And I wonder, I, I think this, uh, it's, it's characteristic. I think, I don't think our church is, is unique here, but, but I think it's characteristic um, in, in our wider culture even for, for people, I think it's even sinful, our sinful human nature to be content to, to let others do the work. You think about, about hockey um, as, a, as a team sport. And, and if, if one player is not doing his job, the whole thing falls apart very quickly. If one person is not doing what, 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 he's, what, he, what his job is, then, then they'll be quickly scored again. But many, many times people are, are not even like hockey players, they're like hockey fans. And they can, they can sit up in the stands or they can watch on TV and they can pick apart pieces of, of the game of those players on the ice. And they might even be accurate in the, the faults that they're seeing. But they really need to get on the ice. They really need to get, to get down there and to get working, to get in the game. And you're a lot, likely, a lot less likely to be critical when you're out there yourself. Beloved Church is not a spectator sport. We need each other. We have been sovereignly placed together in this particular church at this particular time to serve each other for the glory of God. As Calvin wrote, he said, No member of the body of Christ is endowed with such perfection as to be able, without the assistance of others, to supply his own necessities. You need the church, and the church needs you. Love it again. You are God's gifts to the church. Ask yourself, what, what have I done recently to help build the church? What have I done to help build the church? I can think of lots of ways that I, I help. I see people doing this. I, I, I see people praying, people meeting together at, at set times and, and, and at, at other times to, to, to pray together. I see people serving, they're cooking and, and cleaning, and they're involved in the, the music ministry. I see people encouraging each other by identifying evidences of grace in one another. I see people exhorting each other when, and calling them to, to love and good deeds. I see people loving each other in very practical ways. I've seen this church growing. And it's, it's an encouragement. It's an encouragement to me as a pastor to see, to see you walking in these things, to see you growing in these things, to say that, that this church is not where it was in, in these regards two years ago. And I praise God for that. That is a work of the Holy Spirit. So the church is growing and it's encouraging. But we also need to, to remember not to be content with the status quo. 
Remember Jesus' command in John 13, 34 and 35. He said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now this command, we talked about this before, but this command to love wasn't new. The, the command to love goes all the way back to the Pentateuch. You can see it all the way through the Old Testament. The command to love isn't new, but the new part is where Jesus says, as I have loved you. How did Jesus love you? By giving his life for your sins. He's calling us to do the same. In that same chapter, in John 13, remember that the, the disciples were... They were arguing over who was going to be the greatest. But, but what did Jesus do? He, 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 he stripped down and, and knelt at his apostles' feet, their dirty, stinky feet, and washed their feet. The King of kings and the Lord of lords took on the most humble and lowly form of a servant. It was that the, the lowest servants would wash feet. People didn't, they didn't wear shoes like we do back then. Lots more animals around back then. I won't go into details, but it was a dirty job. And Jesus humbled himself by becoming the most humble servant. That's not all. He died for our sins. He died for our sins. And he's calling us to take up our cross and follow him. He's calling us to lay down our lives for one another. Let's face it, none of us has loved and served like that. And so we thank God for the gospel that, that Jesus filled up what's lacking in our service. And his perfection is credited to us. But he's calling us. He's calling us to love and serve one another with a perfect heart of love. The real test of, of whether you, you are, are loving in your service is when you're serving, you see others who aren't, and how you respond to them in your heart. Or when you serve and, and you feel that, that people aren't appreciating you. That's a real test of whether your service is really for God or for you. But what would the church look like if everybody loved like Jesus? I'll ask that another way. What would the church look like if everybody served like you? Would the church be stronger? Or would it be weaker? Would you pray with me that we would all grow in our service? Would you pray with me that the Lord will help each of us to see the, the gifting that God has given us and to help us to, to seek to serve in a Christ-like way? Would you commit to praying for that personally as an individual and for us corporately? Does it excite you to think about what this church can be as the Lord answers that prayer? It thrills me. Because I know that God will be glorified. And way far beyond anything he's going to be glorified.
sacrifice of Christ. Lord, we were weak and sinful. Lord, we were the ungodly. But Lord Jesus, you died for us. You paid the penalty that we deserved. You suffered the agonies of the cross. As your Father poured out his holy, righteous wrath on you in our place. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you gave up your life. That you went into the grave. But Lord, we thank you that you were also raised from the grave, that you have ascended to the Father, and that, Lord Jesus, you are interceding for us at this very moment. Lord, you are praying for us that we will love and serve like that. Lord, would you help us, each one of us, to look to your example. Lord, would you help us by your grace and for your glory to follow you in your example. We pray this for the glory of your name and for the building of your church.